Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 104. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, our special guest is a juggler, contortionist, actor, show producer, web designer, and so much more. He's Scott Neary. Before I talk to Scott, let's thank our host, the International Jugglers Association. You can join the members of the IJA this summer at their big annual festival in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. You can go to Amazon.com and support me by buying my new novel, Bud Suckers, rate and review on Kindle for just $1.99. Okay, now drop everything. Get ready to hear Scott Neary. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast, number 104. My special guest, Mr. Scott Neary. Welcome, Scott. Hey, thanks, Dan. You're amazing. I'm so glad to be talking to you. Well, thank you so much. Always good to flatter the host right off the bat. I appreciate that. Of course, we're going to talk about juggling and your career in juggling. But before we get to your career as a vibrant performer and juggler, let's talk about the young Scott Neary. Where were you born and what were you like as a kid? I was born in San Francisco. I lived in Marin for the first one year of my life and then moved to Ohio where I was raised. I, I didn't like doing the things that people told me to do or I didn't feel like I was good at succeeding in things that were normal. So I always was pursuing from a really young age things that were weird and things that other people around me in Ohio in small town Ohio weren't doing like learning magic tricks. Well, what, what did your parents do? Uh, any entertainment background? My mom was a teacher, so I was terrible at school. And my dad was a sports coach and a journalist. So I rebelled against normal sports, and I also did not use newspapers. Didn't use newspapers, meaning you didn't sort of stay up with common culture or just were you off in your own little world? Or No, I would, I would pee directly on the floor. Ah, I see. So it was a house trading <laughs> thing. I got gotcha. you. All right, we're not going back that far. So, and so, when did you first experience juggling? What were your thoughts when you saw juggling before you actually became a juggler yourself? It started with the magic, and then I wanted to. I found these like because my dad was a journalist, we would get free passes to the circus and to Disney on Ice, and we would go to the circus. I was afraid of clowns when I was young, but then later on, I found these like programs from Ringling Brothers and they every one of them I thought the art was really cool and then every one of them had a clown college application in it so I thought that would be cool I like doing magic I thought all I had to do is learn every other circus skill and then I could be a clown I wanted so I learned unicycling and juggling and all kinds of other stuff and then when I started doing juggling and putting it into my magic shows. It was way more fun to juggle. Juggling was like a thing I could do outside. It was physical. And when I did magic shows, people would sometimes say like, oh, I've seen that trick or whatever. Or if I messed up, then it wasn't impressive. But a juggling thing was like always cool. It was always happening in the moment. And that's what I really liked. I liked the experience of opening people up in the moment. And what age did you start performing these magic shows? I started doing stuff a little earlier, but then I started charging when I was 11 mm. doing, I would go door to door. I was in a small town, so I would just go knock on people's doors and say, Hey, do you have a birthday this year? <laughs> okay. And, <laughs> and what kind of large fees did you command with that kind of a promotional strategy? <laughs> I would, it would work. Um, people yeah. would book me. I was doing it for like 20 bucks. I just wanted to buy more magic tricks. So that's how I started doing it. And then I would get, people would say, oh, not a birthday, but we have a banquet for the Boy Scouts coming up or we have a church event and we could definitely use a $20 performer. <laughs> so from a very early age, you had this idea of being a professional and making money at it. So how did you kind of move up to sort of a maybe $40 gigs or what was the first <laughs> step in sort of the upward progression of your career? Well, my first mentor was my neighbor who I showed a magic trick to and he said, come into my basement. And I went down and he had magic tricks everywhere. He was from the Chavez school. He had learned at the Chavez school in California. And I don't know what that is. What's the Chavez school? It's a magic school. I think it still exists. And it's, it was very based on, think of tuxedo coat tails, really complicated 
ball manipulation, card manipulation, all that. Yeah, the cool um, stuff, the manipulation cool, stuff. The cool yeah. stuff that the jugglers actually like, yeah. Yeah, the stuff we can appreciate as, oh, you didn't just buy that and right. on stage, yeah. Right. And what was his name again? His name was? His name was Herb Nyland. He worked for Ethan Allen Furniture Cutting Fabric during the day, and then he would do magic shows at different events. So he didn't really have a motivation to make a lot of money. I didn't think that it was like a real prof- – I knew that David Copperfield existed, but – I didn't really know that performer and I knew that Tom Cruise exists, but I didn't think that it was like a real job that you could get. So I took on other jobs. And then after high school, I met Frank Olivier in in, um, Nashville, Tennessee. He was working on a showboat and he's an amazing juggler, entertainer, comedian, hippie. And a past uh, Drop Everything guest as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Check out his episode. Oh, he's amazing. Yeah, of course. Frankie Livy. And what a great person to run into. Right? Yeah. Talented. Yeah. A lot of intimidating. energy. Intimidating. Was it? Yeah. Very intimidating. Yeah. Because he was like, he was killing it. <laughs> and he was so good. And I was from like small town. I could juggle and I could pass. He's like, yeah, here's my card. Here's a video of my show. You're awesome. Here, um, come on over to my place anytime and we'll we'll pass. And I was like, uh, okay. And I never called him. Then I went to the juggling club in town, like a, f- a few months later, I found out about it and I, and he was there. And then my, the other people that were kind of my age, they encouraged me to go hang out with Frank. So I started hanging out with him and he was the mentor that took me to the like professional level. He told me to start going out on the street and that would be the toughest school that I could go to. And I took his encouragement and I started performing around the country as a street performer. Yeah, the thing about uh, Frank is he's a killer. Like mm-hmm. if you ever have to follow him like at Moisture Fest, we had to follow him a couple of times. Yeah. He's, he knows how to wring the laughs out of the crowd. It's really, uh, I think he's one of the best at that. Yeah. Of creating that kind of comic, you know, getting on a roll where the audience yeah. is just going crazy. So big fan yeah. of Frankie's and, uh, and that's a good person to run into at that early age. Yeah. So what were your street experiences like? Were you working the streets of Nashville or where did you yeah. work the streets? Immediately I did Nashville. They had they had like a music night where they block off the street and um, me and my friends would do some street shows. After then I moved to Kentucky in order to save some money. I My friend gave me a place to stay and I saved money for a year and a half and then went to, to um, New Orleans started performing there during the summer, which was terrible. Mm, it's a tough place, yeah. It was really hot. Was and it Jackson was there. Square? Was that where you were? Yeah. 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 Then I did Boston, then San Francisco. And San Francisco is where I started really like owning it. And I was doing basically Frank Olivier's act because he had given me that video. I had a TV with a VCR built in. And when I lived in Kentucky, every night at dinner time, I would watch Frank Olivier's video. And that's what I would watch every day. And I had no cable or anything. And right, right, right. when I went on the street, nothing was working that I was doing. And I was like, I could do that one joke that works. I know that joke works. So then I started doing all of like a whole bunch, not all of, I couldn't do any of the good stuff that Frank did, right? but I was stealing a bunch of his stuff. And he came and saw me in San Francisco and he said, Hey Scott, I think it's time for you to maybe work on your own things. He was really nice about it. Well, that's not uncommon, you know, that kind of initial copying and then you yeah. find your own voice kind yeah. of thing. So that was nice. He was cool about it because a lot of performers might have been a, a bit put off by that. Yeah. I was not very successful on the street, so it wasn't like I was really cashing in on right, it right, anyway. Right. <laughs> so maybe he's also felt sorry for you a little bit. Like, yeah. And he's a hard guy to emulate. I mean, that's the thing I see a lot of performers do. Yeah, he's impossible. Is they might, like even magicians, they might buy the lines, you know, but they can't deliver it the same way or it doesn't fit their character. So it doesn't make sense. So, yeah. So you're struggling on the streets and Frankie's helping you. And uh, what was your next step? So I was like, okay, I have to do my own thing. And the reason I went on the street was to learn to do indoor shows. So I had a lot of things that I experimented with. And then I got a little gig in Palo Alto doing a cabaret kind of thing. And I said, now's the time. 
so I sat down with a video camera in my apartment and started working on all the tricks that I'd experimented with, especially the pancake flipping stuff. Now that's one of your that's one of your trademark tricks. Yeah. How'd that idea come to you? Because uh, obviously that's not a thing that many performers do, and it requires um, you know to bring a, a little stove and. So it was a bit of a commitment. So what what brought yeah. you to that idea of doing pancake juggling? My friends in Nashville and I joked around about starting a cult where we juggled all day, starting <laughs> with breakfast. Okay. And my father had flipped pancakes in the morning sometimes, and I thought it was fascinating. And the thing that was always weird to me about magic or juggling was the disconnection from people's real lives. I always liked magic tricks that used everyday objects that looked like real everyday objects. And when people saw juggling and they hadn't tried juggling, they weren't as impressed as people who had gone, oh, I tried juggling three balls before, but it's impossible. Those people loved to watch juggling. So if I could do things that other people had tried to do, then I could kind of bridge that gap and, and share that wonder of juggling with everybody. And what's the secret to pancake juggling? Is it the, uh, the the stickiness of the pan? How do you how do you get a good consistent pancake for juggling? <laughs> well, my pancake is self rising flour and water, and I guess the secret is, I, and I do a twelve. It's a twelve inch pan. It's really big and pretty heavy. The secret is to flip the pancake well and catch it, and you want it slippery, not too crispy. <laughs> Yeah, it has to slide right out of the pan. Now, this was not a yeah. street act, though. This was something you started performing indoors? I started with that cabaret. I did it in the cabaret, but I used a portable stove, so then I took it on the street and started doing it on the street with... It was interesting because people would gather around to see what I was doing. Usually, a street act is like, I'm going to stand on top of this huge thing, and I'm going to... You have some kind of a, a whatever, a cliffhanger, a hook. Right, like a unicycle sitting there. Eventually, you'll get to the unicycle kind of thing or some chainsaws. Stick around. Yeah. Right. So starting to cook a pancake and kind of mumbling about how I'm doing a pancake show, it was a little bit intriguing to people, and that was cool. Yeah, an attention getter, yeah. Not just hungry people, but everybody. And did you give the pancakes away after the routines? Or was that something you would... uh... Sometimes people would request it. Most of the time it would drop on the ground <laughs> as part of the routine. Yeah, the, the cool it was it created a narrative. So like, is he gonna finish cooking this pancake? Is it gonna burn? Is he what is he gonna do with it? And I love that narrative. I love the narrative of a street show just being like especially like in some of the nicer venues, it's not quite the same, but on the street street, it's like an, I was in my own a, clothes that I made myself, kind of gutter punk looking kids shouting at random strangers. <laughs> and then I transformed from that to somebody that 300 people were cheering on. And I love telling that story over and over again for audiences. Yeah, it's a very unique thing. And it obviously, it's taken you quite a few places. Let's sort of move on a bit in your career. Yeah, uh, I think one of your big shows that I when I met you was you went on tour with Brooks and Dunn, uh, yeah. Country Act. Yeah. How, how far into that? Because that was like a two-year tour or something. How far into your career was that? That was pretty early. That was yeah. a year and a half after. Well, I mean, if I started at 11, then it's far. But after street performing for a year and a half, I got the gig. And it kind of came about because Nashville, again, friends from Nashville were my one friend from Nashville, Scott Tripp. He's a balloon sculptor now. He was seen at an awards party by Brooks and Dunn, and they said, we want to make uh, Cirque du Soleil for Hillbillies. Can you come in, on tour with us? And he said, yeah. And he got his the people that he knew together, and we all went on tour. So I wasn't super qualified on the national level, but I just knew the right guy, and we had a blast going. I went for two, two years on tour with them. Now, I'm not familiar with Brooks and Dunn, but I imagine they're pretty heavy country and attract a pretty heavy... Yeah country audience were yeah. you fa- were you a fan of that music and that lifestyle or just kind of rolled with it a bit when they paid me i became a big fan <laughs> there you go and that was like a, a year and a half or two years how long was the total tour the total tour was it was two summers it was 50 50 dates per wow. place per summer and it was just on the weekend wait yeah it was just on the weekends the guys like brooks and dunn were top level amazing it was the highest grossing country music tour ever it was kind of a Lollapalooza 
of musicians and I learned a lot about what success looks like. And they were so like generous and gracious and like Kix Brooks invited me to come with them on the Tonight Show appearance that they did. Wow. But they couldn't work out the details to make it work for me. So he got me a signed t-shirt and <laughs> it was really um, cool for me because I had done banquets and birthday parties and I'd done street shows. And then I was on stage for 15,000 people at a time. And I got to see so much of what the scale of show business was and how it doesn't really matter what the scale is, how everybody's still just doing their job and you can find love in it or you can find a suffering in it. <laughs> like Brooks and Dunn were on it and then there were other country music acts that were big. Some of them had attitude and stuff. Now, does this kind of spoil you a bit? I mean, to have such a, a big sort of start? I mean, where do you go from there? I mean, how do you, how do you top 15,000 people audiences and when that's over? What what happens to you? I don't recommend against it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no. It sounds like great fun and it sounds amazing. It sounds like probably uh, one of the best uh, type of gigs I can imagine, touring with a, a big rock or country band like that. Yeah, it was cool. And, um, and, and lots of groupies, of course. And uh, Yeah, <laughs> I, I met people. Yeah, I met some people. But uh, it was cool. It was not bad at all to like go from that to doing street shows. I wasn't. I wasn't concerned about it. I went back to doing street shows and I had money from it because I didn't really, my relationship with money through life was always kind of magical thinking. So I just kind of like saved it because I didn't <laughs> really have anything to spend on. Right. And then I burned through it because I wanted to do more street shows and I couldn't get myself motivated to get out on the street. Then I went on to other things. Well, you always struck me as a guy who wanted to put his own shows together. Yeah. You know, you had a cooking show and you had other yeah. like unique shows. What was the first time you tried to put like your own your own production together, a Scott Neary show that was had a unique kind of concept? I did a one man show in San Francisco and uh, it was just one night. I was 23 or something like who cares what my life is as a one man. It was kind of a bio biographical thing plus juggling. And um, Paul Nathan had a theater that he was running and he said, if you want to do your cooking show, because I was doing pancake flipping, he said, if you want to do your cooking show in my theater, you promoted your show really well. So if you want to come promote our theater, you can do your show, your cooking show at our theater. And I was like, okay, my cooking show, I'll be ready in two weeks. So I put together this whole cooking show thing that was every week I made a different meal based on a theme like gingerbread crack house and what if robots could eat. And I would do juggling cooking and getting hurt in this cooking show. And it was a mess, but it was my first good. It was my first really self-produced thing. And this is back in San Francisco. Because yeah. I also have uh, in my notes that you trained with uh, Master Lu Yi, because in addition to being a juggler, you're also a very fine contortionist. Uh, at what point did you train with the circus school uh, Master Lu Yi? I trained with him in 2000. So it was right before I took off with Brooks and Dunn. I did three months, I think, and I took every class that I could at the same time at the circus school. I was under Lu Yi doing Chinese acrobatics. I was taking two of the Chinese acrobatics classes at the same time. And it was really fun for me because it was in my upbringing with my dad, the way my dad taught me sports, it was like a lot of what I was doing wrong. That's what training was. It was just more about like, what am I doing wrong? And so I hated normal sports because of that. And when I took the Chinese acrobatics classes, they were about, here's the impos an impossible thing that nobody in this class can do. Everybody try it. Like do first, first day of class was like, do a handstand for a minute against the wall. Nobody could do it. So you just got to push yourself as hard as you wanted. I got to push myself as hard as I wanted, which was harder than a lot of the people in the class. And that taught me a new way to look at practice and, and pain and, and what I was capable of achieving. It led to the contortion, but I didn't learn contortion from Lu Yi. And it kind of helps you to uh, accept failure, right? The idea that it's okay to fail over and over again, as long as you're kind of moving in a direction and learning and, yeah, and going exactly. towards where you want to go. That's when I, when I started teaching juggling lessons to people, I realized that the way that I'd been taught and the way that I'd seen other people teach was a lot about like, here, move your hand over here. Okay. Now you need to get your throw up to the here. And when I started teaching, I was like, I'm just going to take all the anxiety out of it because like, I want to teach people like the way little kids learn. So I just said, here, try to do this. And I would just throw two balls 
and catch them. And then I would say, okay, let's do this. And then we would practice a thing. I would practice a thing with a person. And then when they started building up anxiety, I would be like, okay, now we're going to count throws. Okay. Now we're going to do the sloppiest style we can do. Now we're going to do the neatest style we can do. And I would keep changing the context so they couldn't get any anxiety built up. And I saw like really fast results by focusing on anxiety instead of focusing on form. Interesting. And you always use your skills in a very unique way. So even with contortion, you weren't like a standard contortionist. I remember you seeing you doing a routine where you escaped from a backpack. It was a yes. particular type of backpack. I forget the type. <laughs> what, what led you to have a routine escaping from a backpack? That that came about from a um, juggling convention in Portland. Somebody was talking to me about the performance that I did, and I felt really uncomfortable about it. <laughs> they were like complimenting me, and I, I felt uncomfortable, and I started like kind of, I had a backpack on, and I just kind of started fidgeting <laughs> and like wrapping myself and like backing away from them, kind of like comedically. You know, I wasn't really try. I'm not really that shy, but... Then I put my foot up through one of the straps and then all of a sudden I noticed that there was like people, there were people around me watching me like I was uh, Patrick McGuire or somebody and I put my foot through and then I like tried to figure out how to get my entire body through one strap hole and then I put together a monologue for it and bingo, I had an act. Yeah, no, it's once again a very unique thing where uh, people have seen contortionists or escape artists. Yeah. But you had your own unique spin on it, for sure, for sure. You have a lot of highlights in your career that we, you know, should get to because we only have an hour. But we could, you probably have the two hours worth of uh, credits and highlights. <laughs> so I mentioned a couple of them to sort of tell me what the experience was like, and uh, you know, we'll take it from there. Yeah. When did you appear in the Christian Christina Aguilera video? That was yeah, that was in two thousand five or six, something like that. What's it like to appear in a, a, a music video? I've never done that. What's that like? Well, you don't experience it when it's when you're actually appearing, but when you record it, it's a very different thing to work on a set in front of a camera than it is to work on stage. On stage, there's an adrenaline thing. Well, on set, you're just there all day. So you try to pace yourself and it's a lot about listening and trying to apply yourself to the situation. And I imagine you have to know when to turn it on and turn it off. Like, yeah, you got to be it's a long day. And then when yeah. you have to hit it, it's, it's time to it's time to perform. Right. Yeah. And. With stage shows, especially like learning from Frank Olivier so much, he's very sloppy and, and wild and he doesn't drop very, very much. But if he drops, he doesn't mind it because he's ready. It's yeah, like, I can make it funny. Yeah. Yeah. And he talks the whole time. He doesn't, I don't think he does anything to music. So I was the same way. And when I do something to music or when I do something on front, in front of camera, when I'm in front of camera, I have maybe at least 20 people that are waiting on me to just do it right. And I have to do it right or else right. they're, they're like pissed off and they have to work harder. So that pressure is on and getting that precision right was a, a learning process in Hollywood for me. Yeah. I remember the movie Annie had uh, Michael motion, had a big, huge production number. And of course I'm just focused on the juggler. Yeah. You can see him drop in the back and I'm sure they're like, <laughs> okay, we can't start over because of the juggler. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's very important to do not drop in those situations. You know, to, yeah. to juggle cleanly, because yeah. there's probably a lot going on. And you're just a small part of it. It can't be the juggler that slows things down, right? And also, like, that's my job. That's yeah. In on stage, my job is to entertain the crowd. On camera, my job is to be precise, not run into anybody, not hurt anybody, um, not drop, do the thing the way they want it to be done. Or at least be able to like advise them and tell them, okay, that's not really possible. Like I did this um, shameless commercial where I was the juggling double. So I juggled these three objects. It was a, a beer bottle, a high-heeled shoe, and a baby bottle, I think. And I had to walk through the house with changing lights and walk through a doorway. And they wanted me to juggle higher than the doorway through the whole thing. And so my job is to look at the thing, practice it be ready, examine the objects that I'm going to juggle, see if I can talk to props if there if something needs to be made heavier or whatever, and then just be that person that delivers each time. But also to act. I mean, you also had to be on, on camera and be an actor as well. Did you have yeah. acting experience? Did you take acting lessons or acting classes? I took a little bit of acting classes, and I 
done like high school plays and stuff. I haven't, I haven't been called on to be a super great dramatic actor. So mostly I just have to do some, I have to memorize like two or three lines on some things and show up and say them. And then most of the jobs I've gotten have been for skills. So I'll be the juggler who has two lines. But have you wanted to sort of move more? Was that something you were thinking about moving more in that direction or always keeping the circus and juggling skills as part of what you do? I've played with it. The thing about Hollywood is that it's, it's a total mind um, freak. What you, yeah. I don't know if this is family friendly. Well, um, we would bleep it if you said something else, but we, we okay. can bleep it. But uh, mind freak is, gets the idea across. <laughs> that actually, actually, that's a Vegas magician. But um, yeah, Chris Angel. The, <laughs> mind freak. We'll say mind uh, F. Okay. Mind yeah. Um, it's a little bit boggling because being in Hollywood, I feel like I have always the opportunity around the corner to make a million dollars like tomorrow I could do an audition that gets me an, a million dollar job. And so opportunities are always, always seem like they're there. So I have been swayed by that sometimes and thinking like, Oh, I need to take some acting classes and, and figure out how to be an actor so I can get these big auditions. And, but my, my wheelhouse has been being a good performer and, a and a juggler and a contortionist. And you kind of know what it's like to be on movie sets because you've done some different movies yeah. and that experience is a lot different than people think. Like you say, it's a long day, a lot of waiting around. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of your movie credits. What about Bratz the movie? What was your role in that? <laughs> I juggled in that. Uh, I was a talent show high school student for Bratz the movie and I saw like a 10-year-old girl watching Bratz on an airplane sitting next to me. Oh, funny. And um, it was it was one of the worst movies of all time. It was number 30 on IMDb, worst movies ever. Somehow I missed it. I don't know. It, yeah. Bratz, it, was, it wasn't my demographic <laughs> of action, action adventure movies. But I saw a little girl watching it on an airplane next to me, and I, I was like, that's me. My scene was just about to come up, so I like timed <laughs> it out. I was like, there I am. That's me. That's and she's funny. like, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, I just turned away. I didn't like try to fight her. <laughs> it was like a really funny thing, but Bratz was cool. <laughs> Scary movie five was a big one. Yeah, I was you're at, like you're all through that movie doing different stuff. What yeah. was that experience like? Scary movie. That was um, really cool. I was in heavy makeup for it. I was the villain mama and I got hired because I could contort and I was tall and thin and then I also juggled because they knew I could juggle. So I had to juggle three tennis balls unweighted in. Um, I had three inch rubber finger extensions and rubber gloves. And I had a mask that had one eye hole, one like pinhole eye hole cut into it. And I was doing it on set with set lights um, and fog. That was some tough on camera juggling. Yeah. Well, hopefully they didn't expect you to do too much. Just basically, because Mama, I don't think, had to be like a professional juggler character. She was right. kind of a scary, like that like that character from The Ring, sort of, I remember. Kind of a white, yeah. wraithy looking. Exactly. Yeah. I had a big, long wig, and I was in ratty clothes and gray skin. Yeah. So that was a, it was a challenge. That was a challenging juggling on set thing. And, but I got to do like crazy stunts and I was on a wire hanging 15 feet above a hot tub and then I got dropped then they just like pulled a thing pulled a pin and I dropped straight into the hot tub and I got to like descend into this like pit of mist and got kicked in the crotch and all kinds of cool stuff well I mean it sounds like fun as far as like the idea of uh being in a movie you know Mm -hmm. being on a movie set but uh not having to like carry the dramatic part of you know, an actor just sort of being more of a, a visual interesting yeah. aspect of it. Cause if you, people catch the, if they see the clips of it, uh, your character, I would say is pretty unrecognizable, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but pretty extreme as well. Yeah. One movie I did see, I, I think maybe you were just a double in this or something. What'd you do in don't mess with the Zohan? Cause I did like that one. Yeah. The Adam Sandler movie. I did an acting audition for that. I was supposed to be an angry guy that got in a car wreck and then I would get contorted, tied up in a knot. But the acting audition, I wasn't good. They were like, you're angry. So can you try to not smile? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I did it again. They were like, yeah, just one more time without the smile. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I was like, what? I didn't even know. I didn't know what I was, that I was smiling and I didn't really know how to, I don't know. I was messed up. So, so I didn't get the, the acting part, but I got the contortion part, but then rubber boy, who's the most flexible man in the world. He was on set with me and he just ended up doubling everybody because he was, he's indestructible. So I hung out for two weeks on set with him. It was a pretty great gig. Got picked up in a limousine, flown first class to New York City, picked up in a limousine from the airport and taken to a five-star hotel. I went to the ATM to go grab some money for food and my checking account had a lower balance than $20. So I couldn't get the money out. I went to a grocery store, grabbed some a loaf of bread and some peanut butter then went back to my room and I wasn't called to set for three days. So I just lived on a loaf of bread and peanut butter for, and the apple that they put on my pillow for three days watching a 60 inch plasma TV <laughs> in, in times square. In a, how, how did that happen? How'd you end up with no money? You're doing all these things and yeah. it's just your relationship with money was just so yeah. wacky. Yes. Yeah. I was always doing like experimental things, trying out new things, jumping into gigs all the time that were like, whatever. I didn't, if they were, I was kind of rebellious too. So like if somebody offered me a good gig, then I would, I would be more rebellious and difficult to work with than if, if they offered me a crappy gig in the back of a punk club or something. Oh, that's funny. Right, right, right. Was that kind of a sort of anti-establishment kind of thing or, or maybe a fear of having money? What do you yeah. think caused that kind of relationship with money or, or with success? Well, I think it was like a, um, it was kind of tied back into the why I did magic and then why did I do pancake juggling? It was like this fear that I would be publicly shown, it would be publicly seen what I'm trying to go for in life. So like if I was a realtor, it would be pretty obvious that I was trying to sell houses and trying to make money and people could judge me based on that. But if I'm a pancake juggler, nobody knows what I'm trying to do. So they can't really judge whether I'm doing it right or not. And they can't compare it to anybody. So I was kind of like, my avoidance of criticism is what drove me in a lot of the things in my life for a long time. Well, obviously you got over that because um, you've become such a successful performer. And you've yeah. done some really, really cool stuff. Like let's talk about this um, hammer commercial. Yeah. Where you're bouncing a, a nail on the end of a hammer. I thought that's one of the coolest things I've seen. Obviously there has to be some camera trickery. Yes. What actually were you able to do with sort of the hammer and the nails? Okay. So that was a weird gig because I was hired by the visual effects company that was hired to make the commercial. So they asked for a juggler in the casting, but they didn't really want a juggler. They wanted somebody who could just hold something. So it looked mm. quite kind of right. And I came in, I'd seen their brief, so I I did a little bit of practice the day before and came in and I they wanted to balance a nail on a hammerhead. I couldn't do that, but they wanted to bounce a nail on a hammerhead and on the side of the hammer, I could do that a little bit. I I started to learn how how the ha how the nail would bounce and how far away it would bounce so I could like figure out the right height and kind of get it going. Then I did some different flips like shoulder throws and uh, leg throws and stuff like that. And then like finger spins and different things. And they were, they were like, okay, this guy could handle it. So it ended up being a, a lot of v VFX in the final thing, but I could do some of the stuff that they asked for. I could hit a nail out of the air and stuff like that. I couldn't hit it across the room into the wall. Like they did. Right. The and I had a, a clock, uh, yeah. from it yeah, yeah is there somewhere we, is that on youtube like the whole commercial somewhere because it's really really impressive yeah i think if you go to um jugglegood.com you can see you can click on the movie posters that are in my on my site and you can see some different examples of things that i did and one of my favorite of your appearances which is on your uh reel as well as on youtube is the jay leno cup flip yeah uh, you have a cup in your mouth like a, like a styrofoam cup it does a complete flip and lands back in your mouth. Is that is that yeah. how I remember it? Yeah, kind of like a now, ping pong ball thing, but with a flip. I liked it because in that segment, which is kind of like you were from the audience, uh, you need something quick. It needs to pay off. And I was really impressed that, to me, it seemed like a trick that could go wrong. 
Yeah. Was it pretty consistent or how do you feel about being in that situation where you basically have like one try to do it, you know, to, to nail it? How yeah. do you handle that kind of pressure? I had played with the trick and I put it in a reel of something that I did. I put it in, or I put a video up or something at some point. And then like four years later, my friend who was working for Leno said, can you still do that trick? Because we're looking for stuff like that. And I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I hadn't really put it into anything. I didn't know how to make it a routine or I didn't really want to work on it or something. So I practiced for a week, tried to get it as consistent as I could. And I was freaked out. It was another case of like, I can't draw. Yeah. I'm on camera. I have this moment to do this thing. And I watched other people do spots on Leno and with this in the style. And I had, it was like, first time I have to get it. So I was sweating all day. <laughs> Biggest TV I'd been on. Yeah, yeah. It's basically, it's live to tape. So it's basically live, but they record it in advance. But they're not going to let you do it over. I mean, you mess up. They're not going to go, hey, let's cut everything so the right. junior can try it again. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it wasn't my trick. And and it wasn't like something from my show or something that was like solid. So did talk to Jay. I had a microphone on. And I um, went to do the trick. I messed it up. It hit my forehead. And I heard the cup hit my forehead. And I realized that my microphone was still on and i was like oh my god yes so so i made a joke about missing it and then i missed it again and i made a joke about missing it and the audience was laughing and jay was okay with it and then the third time i hit the trick and the crowd went crazy and it was like ah oh, it was so much better than it would have been <laughs> i remember seeing it thinking because those spots are hard. Those little, like, you're from the audience. You're not supposed to be a performer. Yeah. You only have a, a minute or so. And right. you really made it pay off. And I thought, I tried that trick myself afterwards. Yeah. And I thought, that's a, that's a tricky little trick. It's very, it's what, such a fine motor skill trick. Plus, like, how wet is your mouth and yeah, what size is the cup and stuff like that. See, I did the same kind of spot on Jane Little, but I, but I really wimped out. I did the, uh, the xylophone with the ping pong ball in my mouth. No, that was great. You know, playing a song. I saw but it, I'm saying yeah. it's like if you mess that up, it's it was. I really feel like juggling on TV and juggling in these situations where you can't drop is almost the purest kind of juggling. Like yeah. nowadays, you see a lot of people making videos; they can do a thousand takes. Mm -hmm. But when you have to nail it in that moment, yeah, it really takes the juggling to another level, in my yeah. opinion. So yeah, it's a very different feeling for me. You also did the Late Late Show. Was that a, a pancake juggling? That's with James yeah. Corden, right? Yeah, James Corden met them through Booby Trap, my Circus Variety show. Which and we'll talk about soon because that was a huge success. I want to get to that next. Okay. And they, they came to me for casting help and I supplied them with a juggler myself for one of the things. And then I did juggling and different, I balanced a stack of chairs on my face for one of their episodes. I did some other thing and then I did pancake flipping for their similar to the tonight show like normal person doing a skill so i did pancake flipping so that was easy and i was already used to that set and everything and and they highlight they highlighted people really well and treat people really nice nice i didn't know you get to do uh, multiple appearances on that show i thought yeah. it was kind of a one and done thing but that's yeah. nice you had a relationship with them and did several appearances yeah and they keep coming back to me for they're like we need a hula hoop or whatever so i i help them Hook up with that. Well, if they ever need an old washed up juggler who does yeah. a podcast, then... Uh, did you... Have you done that show? No, not that show. I only did the uh, Meal or No Meal on Jay Leno. Um, I'm not sure where that was filming or where I was at in my life where I just didn't even think about that or, or try to apply. <laughs> if you want to. Yeah, if you want to. They have like a golf... Maybe your golf thing or something would be good for them well i have to think if i'm really retired or not i've always uh <laughs> i've always been threatening retirement and uh when i turned 60 this year i thought well that's it but i'll, I'll keep that in mind I'll keep dan that in i think mind. i think one of the most important things about retirement is to uh decide that you're retired i know i i've retired like five times already <laughs> they keep pulling me back in you know like on the godfather i try like to get out they pull one me more back heist in. well someone offers me a job 
That's, yeah. that's the problem. <laughs> Five times. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, I'm retired. I'm like, oh, I, okay, I got to do that one. So, well, okay, let's talk about your, your work with other performers because you're always a guy like creating these own shows. But at a certain point, you decided to create a show at bringing in other performers. And you created probably one of the most successful, if not uh, the most successful live show in L.A. for years, Scott Neary's Booby Trap. Uh, talk me through that. Scott Neary's Booby Trap became the number one show on TripAdvisor in L.A. And it was it ran for about five years. Started out as kind of an open mic where I brought in comedians and variety performers and circus performers. We had this warehouse space provided by way too much entertainment. And they were... The building was about to be torn down, so they gave, they just opened it up to me and said I could do a thing. So I started doing this open mic. I thought it would be torn down soon, so I didn't think it would have to run very long because I wasn't really a fan of open mics anyway. I kind of feel like there are plenty of places people can do bad stuff on stage if they need to. Right. You don't need to contribute to that, right? I guess. Right. <laughs> right. Like I've found so many places where I could experiment. Poetry open mics, comedy open mics, they're all welcoming to whatever. But so I didn't really feel like I was doing anything very useful. But after three weeks, there were 27 people that wanted to perform in the show. And I said, okay, I have to book this or something. And it became an actual show. And what was the format? Because it was a lot of performers, I remember. And they had a very short period of time. Four minutes. Four minutes. Yeah. And that was. You hosted. You were the host. Yeah. That was enough to make the audience feel safe. And make the performer feel uncomfortable because most people have like a six minute act or something like that. Right. Uh, not, not a four minute act, but people did it and squeezed it in. And then we would, if they went over time, we would come on stage with big, like car wash, air dancer guy, <laughs> inflatables and a big gong and, uh, whatever flashing lights and a bubble machine and push them off stage. Now, now, did this four minutes make the audience comfortable because they thought, oh, even if I don't like this, it's only going to be four minutes? Exactly, yeah. And we could do all kinds of acts that you wouldn't really want to watch normally, but <laughs> you love them because, because they're minutes. in that. Yeah, because you're safe. So that was our like contract with the audience was, we're going to take care of you, and you're going to see spectacular things that you wouldn't see anywhere else and a, a great curated combination of things. And so it was, it was a blast. We'd have 15 acts in a show, four minutes each. It moved really fast. And it would usually end with like a circus act hanging from the ceiling doing something. But we would have jugglers pretty much every show, magicians and stand-ups and musicians, like a kind of a sentiment, like a cafe kind of musician, like a singer-songwriter kind of musician, which was like a total change of pace and really beautiful punctuation for the show. So yeah, I learned a lot about curation and built my network. We had like seven, over over 700 acts in the, in the roster. And did you take it international? I think, did you take it to Australia? I remember, or am I misremembering that? We, I got hired with my wife to go to an Australian variety show and, and host that and create stuff for that. But the booby trap itself stayed national stayed in America. We went to San Diego and Oregon Country Fair and Venice, California. And who were some of the jugglers that came through? Let's drop some names and what kind of experiences you have with the different jugglers. Barry and Zed Friedman. Right. Barry Friedman, uh, my yes. ex-partner who uh, who dumped me for his son, I guess, worked with his son, <laughs> Zed. Yeah. <laughs> Fra- Frank Olivier. I know you had the passing zone, I know, right? The Passing Zone, yes. Of course, the Calvins, I think. Uh, the Calvins. favorite jugglers. So great, yeah. Yeah. And, oh man, so many jugglers. Chris Ruggiero was like, he was he would just show up every week and kill it every time. He was like such a flashy, fun juggler. Alex Clark, who's now a YouTube star. Yeah, big star with his uh, cartoon. It's amazing. Yeah. When you see 14 million views or 20 million views or... Yeah. I'll have to get him. I think, I think, do we have him on a past episode? I forget. If not, I have to get him for... He's a legit celebrity. Like, yeah, little kids will recognize his name. So too big for the Drop Everything podcast, you're saying? Is that... Uh... <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I don't know what he's... I know, Alex. I'll, I'll reach out to him because he'd be a great guest as well. Yeah. Now, you're doing a lot of work with other performers because you sort of seem to have moved 
into this consulting and kind of, like you say, curating. Mm-hmm. So let me talk to me a little about your consulting biz and tell me where people can go to find out about working with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you work with other performers? What's your, your style? Well, I'll be back on stage when some at some time. Right now, my baby is, he's a year and a half old, so he's not vaccinable. He can't be vaccinated and we're just very locked down. And since the lockdown started, Booby Trap ended, I started, I was teaching some online classes to entertainers about branding and newsletters and how to get booked and how to get more stage time and stuff like that. And then those classes kind of dried up as people were realizing they weren't getting on stage anytime soon. But I kept getting calls from people asking me for advice. So I started giving people advice and then I started, then I I started kind of a way for people to use me for a whole month to get feedback from me and get kind of consulting from me on whatever they wanted for the month. And it would be really impactful. It was really cool because if I gave people advice one time, they would maybe not take it. And a lot of the advice was pretty big stuff. So it would just kind of, I would just kind of like leave a, a call going like things need to change Bye. <laughs> yeah, you got one. You have one session. You better yeah. make it fast. Yeah. Hey, your career is going. All, all I'm going to point out is all the places where your career is going in the wrong direction, and you're whatever. So and good luck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're getting no work, and uh, you don't. You're not really that good. But uh, besides that, have a good career. Exactly. I don't know if we're selling your consulting biz that well. How, how did things progress from there? So one call is crappy but multiple calls and having me for a month became like this cool thing where i could follow up with people help to keep them accountable and we could check in and make a game plan for their month and my goal was at least the beginning was to give everybody a return on their investment like three times in the in the coming year just on the the help that i would give them right on the financial end you'd say say hey you're paying me this money, but look, you're going to be making more money with my help and it'll pay right. off for you three right. times. Yeah. So that was cool, but everybody had a different thing that they needed help with. It was difficult for me to really figure out how to serve people and have enough energy to keep on serving people and keep on like every client that I got was really intense and really took a lot of my energy. So I was kind of like dreading getting new clients. <laughs> right. And then I realized that I could make people websites and start with what they're doing now, help them with their brand, help them completely reevaluate how their branding is, make a really solid branding for them, and then develop their website around that branding, giving them a new website plus a new way to talk about them with, with a lot of the things that I was helping people with anyway were like mindset, understanding one's own value and figuring out how to talk to clients. So all that stuff could be improved by just helping them with a website. And that's what I started doing. And that's my main thing now. Now, when you look at jugglers' websites or, or their videos, yeah. where do you see most of them going wrong? I mean, how long do you think a video should be? And, and do you see that their people are selling themselves effectively? Where are jugglers uh, dropping the ball, so to speak? Mostly it's like when I when I started teaching juggling, I started with the way that other people taught juggling, the way that I'd seen people teach juggling. And then when I started evaluating it based on what's my goal, oh, my goal is to teach them as fast as possible how to juggle. It changed how I approached it. And the same thing with people's promo stuff. They, they often think that they need a promo video like somebody else's promo video. And what they need is to figure out what their goal is and then build the strategy around that. So it's just like a joke. What's the right length of a joke is as long as it's good. Yeah. I, mean, I think that way about a video. It's like, well, if people are watching and it's not boring, I mean, they could watch a seven minute video if it keeps their interest. Yeah. I and mean, most people can't watch that long and the video is a minute or two nowadays, it seems like. Right. Back in our day, you'd, you'd send out an eight minute video. But I watch long videos all the time. I watch a video about how to install a car stereo or something. That's a long video. So what's the content? What's the, uh, what are you, who are you talking to? Are you going to be able to talk to them and really serve them with this video? Give them a gift of information. 
So that's that's kind of the determination. You could sell a juggling act in 30 seconds or 15 seconds probably, or it might take you two minutes or eight minutes, depending on what service you're providing. So it's it's really about figuring out the strategy and the brand, which is the unique experience of the service you provide. So if that experience is motivating salespeople, that's the result of the experience is that salespeople are motivated, then you want to base your video around that idea. We get, as performers, we have trouble empathizing with other people. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> in, in real life as well, I see. Just, yeah. <laughs> like, what, what do they want? I mean, what, how can we serve them, like you're saying? Right. So, if I think as a juggler, I think I've worked really hard on this trick and this trick. If I don't consider my audience on stage, I don't empathize with them, then I do the hardest tricks that are the most impressive to me. Right, because you like them. Right. And the same same thing in the in marketing. If you don't empathize with the person who's gonna who's the gatekeeper for you, then you end up sending them the wrong message or giving showing them something that's complicated that isn't interesting. Like showing them a bunch of tricks or showing them your fancy clothes or whatever. But what they want to see is like how easy are you to book? Are you gonna be able to perform in the venue that I set up for you? I think that you and Barry did a really great job with that, with the passing zone of, uh, not with, with, at the passing zone, and you guys both did a great, do a great job of that, talking directly to the person that books and giving them an overall service that isn't just, we can do some tricks, but we are consistent, we're dependable, we deliver. Yeah, I think showing the audience or showing venues that are similar to the, venues you'll be performing in. Mm -hmm. I think maybe a lot of jugglers, they cast the net too wide. Yeah. I do birthday parties and corporate events. Yeah. I mean, you have to kind of know your focus. Mm -hmm. And that that's really important. Like you're saying is, what is what are you trying to get out of this? What kind of jobs? Where, where are you showing that this is my specialty? Right. This is what I do as opposed to, I just juggle, put me somewhere. Right. Like I see a lot of people juggling. You're like, it's not the juggling that sells. It's the act that sells. Right. The juggling has to be in some kind of context. You can't be juggling in your room, doing amazing tricks, and imagine people could imagine what that would be like on stage. Right. So having that very having a person like you who knows this type of thing, and kind of kind of help with the branding, like you say, that's not a word like us jugglers throw around a lot. Is <laughs> right. how's your branding? Right. But it's a very important. It's a very important concept. And it's just it's the connection between what the person booking you wants, what you have, and what your com competitors don't have or aren't offering. So where that Venn diagram meets up is what your brand is. It's the special thing that you offer that other people aren't going to be able to offer. So like in the case of Brooks and Dunn, it wasn't that I was a better juggler or a better entertainer than ever, everybody else, but they had a limited scope of, they, they didn't want to work hard to do a lot of research to find the best juggler. So right. I was within their realm and the people competing with me were just, I just had to be better than them. Well, like I say, it's, it's availability. It's like if they make yeah. a phone call and you're not, you don't answer the phone, they might go, oh, let's move on to the next guy. Right. Because in some people's minds, uh, us jugglers are pretty much interchangeable. Right. Which is why it's so important to create this unique personality like you have. Like you're a unique character in the juggling world. It's yeah. not like, uh, let's get a juggler, let's get Scott Neary. Right. which is what we're always trying to go towards is making our act unique enough where they want the passing zone or they, they want the Raspini brothers as opposed to get us a juggling act. Yeah. And that's where the branding comes in. Now, I don't think we said, where can people go? What's is there a website where people can go uh, to, to hook up with you and, and get your consulting biz? Right now, I'm just doing websites. I, I'll do consulting for, I'm, I'm doing consulting for some high level companies and some specific people that I really believe in, but it's not, it's not a thing that I'm offering generally, but I do websites. So you can just Venmo me and I'll get started on your website. And where do they reach you? It's at, at uh... Scott-Nary, S-C-O-T-N-E-R-Y. I'm on Venmo. Or you can find me on Facebook or the Google Scott-Nary, S-C-O-T-N-E-R-Y. But I don't have a website for my websites because I don't need it. I've just been getting clients like crazy and I'll send you examples or um, talk to you about how to make a solution for exactly what you need. 
Yeah, that's creative. I think that's something that not everybody can offer is the idea that you yourself have a lot of creativity. Mm -hmm. It's not just about, um, I have the skills to do the website. It helps to have someone with a vision or something who can offer unique perspectives because of their own creativity. Yeah. And you've, and you've demonstrated with your own unique routines that that's a skill you possess. It's it's really cool because I get to connect a lot of dots to as being the Hollywood guy, being the casting guy, like not just James Corden, but a bunch of different people come to me for casting help. And I've worked with Cirque du Soleil casting and I know a whole bunch of different aspects of entertainment. So when somebody comes to me and says, hey, I'm a balloon twister and I want to work at state fairs, I know what all those worlds are. And I know how to connect those dots. And that makes it really fun for me to be able to use this. Like, I don't know, it, I've been I've been a jack of all trades for a long time with a lot of this knowledge. And it kind of feels like I'm spreading myself thin. But now being able to put all these things together is really fun for me. And I get to help other entertainers make more great entertainment. So it's it's really fun. Well, I've seen what you do and you, you have my recommendation. And obviously I'm promoting you here on the on the website. So I believe in what you're doing. So thank you. I have a couple more questions. We're approaching the end of our time on the Drop Everything podcast. What is Jambrain? Jambrain was a website that I made with my father for Northern Ohio mu live music. That was another thing of like nurturing entertainment with technology. So we made like before it was when people were still using MySpace and it just wasn't doing the trick for promoting bands. So we made this whole like community thing that was there. And I, that was a cool thing that lasted for a few years. And then Facebook came along and then there were a bunch of other services that built that came along that were international. So people started using those. Great idea though. Like I said, connecting performers with their audience. Yeah. Now you've done so much in your career and you've really ticked a lot of boxes in the movies and live performing this concert tour with Brooks and Dunn. And I know you're really into productivity. So for the very end of our podcast, can you give mm -hmm. us maybe a, a, a tip or two on how to be more productive? Yeah. I'm thinking about writing a book called Everything is Fun, the best productivity book with the worst title. Because <laughs> uh, all these people, yeah, I've been on set with like Oscar winners. I've worked with Olympic athletes and Cirque du Soleil performers and stars of like the biggest stand-up comedians and i see the same thing happening for all these people what really fuels them to be motivated and to do the work that they do is they are playful and they are in a generous service kind of a mission the most depressed comedian sitting backstage that goes out and kills it on stage as soon as they get that first laugh and they see that they're affecting people, they turn on and they become the brilliant person that they are. And it's the same thing with like writer's block, stage fright, whatever procrastination. I keep seeing it over and over again. When we can turn ourselves into, when we can figure out our mission is generosity. Our mission is I want to juggle because I thought that I was incapable when I was a kid. I thought I was a klutz and I was told that I was a klutz. And when I got on stage, when I saw somebody on stage juggling, it made me realize that anything was possible for me. And so I want to share that with other people. So if, if I get a mission like that together, then it isn't about, do, is this a good trick? Am I good enough? Am I whatever? I don't have to be as good as other people. All I have to do is get on stage and share that experience with people. And so when we get on a generous mission like that, it can help to fuel us and make it playful and make it fun. I don't have a expectation. I don't have a job to do. I don't have a heavy burden. I have an opportunity to go out today and do something for other people. And I can have fun with that. That's the biggest key to productivity and all this stuff. Like I was like a productivity hobbyist. I would read a whole bunch of books. I would, I was, there was a life hacker website that I would look at, read all of it every day. And it was not productive to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, like the four hour work week and then yeah. Tim Ferriss. And, yeah. I've done I love, those as well. Yeah. I love that stuff. And, um, all of it comes down to mindset, uh, every single productivity system that I found is about 
putting things into boxes so that your brain can function so that you can release and just get the work done. And so getting people into a generous mindset has been the most rewarding way to get them off their butts to stop thinking like, oh, I'm lazy. I don't really believe in laziness. I believe that everybody's working on something, even if they're working on video, playing a video game to deal with some trauma that they went through. Everybody's working on something. So what is the work that you're going to do? If it's generous, that work is going to give you more energy to do more work. Well, I really appreciate it. you've been very generous with your time and sharing your thoughts here on the Drop Everything podcast. I'm so pumped to be here. <laughs> well, it took me it took me quite a few to get to you, but I've always been a fan. So love it. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Mr. Scott Neary, live entertainment expert, web designer, and amazing performer. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, jugglers. Bye. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 104 with my special guest, Scott Neary. Thank you, Scott. Good luck in your website design, show producing, and all that you do. Hey, go to juggle.org and visit the IGA and find out about their yearly festival, this year taking place in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Go to amazon.com, read Budsuckers, rate and review. And if you're looking to sponsor a podcast, how about sponsoring Drop Everything? You can contact me at danjuggle at gmail.com to discuss the possibilities. Now go out there, drop everything, except when you're juggling.